Hello and welcome to Nonbreaking Space, which you can find online at nonbreakingspace.tv. Nonbreaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest people on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarland, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. I'm Chris from Canada, a web designer and podcaster. Christopher and Dave have invited along to help push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Nonbreaking Space. Our guest for this episode is Eric Meyer. Eric has been working with the web since late 1993 and is an internationally recognized expert on the subjects of HTML, CSS, and web standards. A widely read author, he is the founder of Complex Spiral Consulting, which counts a wide variety of corporations, educational institutions, and government agencies among its clients. Eric, along with Jeffrey Zeldman, is the co-founder of An Event Apart. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Christopher and Dave and their conversation with Eric. Cool. Thank you, Chris. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Hi, Christopher. Um, it's going well. I'm super excited. We have Eric Meyer, who is one of the luminaries, one of the, I, you know, I don't want to date him, but, you know, he's been around a long time and he's written about CSS many, many times and yes. part of the whole history of, uh, of CSS and the web. Right. Yeah. I think he's a, a big part of a lot of people's careers in web design. Uh, just, I know for me, it's just been great uh, just having him out there promoting CSS and, uh, just reading his books and, and what he does for the web and help move it forward. It's awesome. So I'm really glad he's here for today. So so let's just bring him on. Hey, Eric, are you there? Hey. Hey. I, I'm Hi, touched. Eric. <laughs> <laughs> you really like me. <laughs> I'd be working at McDonald's if it wasn't for you. Um, as a matter of fact, I did work at McDonald's. Ah, okay. So we yeah, would have been back together. <laughs> Seven months on Fry Station, baby, before I was able to work my way up to Grill. Ooh, nice. Yeah. You have the scars to show for it, I'm sure. As a point of fact, yes. <laughs> and, and I got to tell you, I, when I started, we were still wearing those, those turd brown polyester oh, cool. uniforms with the little paper nice. hats. Remember those? Yeah, nice. Oh. Yeah. Anyway. Nice. Researching for the podcast, uh, I remember that you used to work for Netscape. Yes. As a... As a what did you do at Netscape? Um, well, I worked with the technology evangelism and developer support team. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe uh, my my title on my card actually did say standards evangelist. Yeah. Um, I was uh, sort of the editorial lead for DevEdge for that period. Oh yes, awesome. if, for those who remember DevEdge, nice. and um, also uh, involved in outreach. Mm-hmm. Um, this was between about mid-2001 and then mid-2003. Yeah. So I, I did come in late in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as though I you know, launched DevEdge and was solely responsible for it. For its entire life, I was more sort of the... I took over from a long line of luminaries, mm-hmm. both DevEdge and the Amazing Fish Cam page. Uh, oh, you know, nice. Maybe, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, a lot of our work was testing... Um, nightly builds of Gecko against like Alexa top 10 or top 50 sites and mm. part, top partner sites with AOL Time Warner and stuff like that to make sure that nothing was breaking. And if something was breaking, figuring out why it was breaking. Mm. And if it was our fault, then filing a bug report. And if it was the site's fault, figuring out how to fix it and then getting in touch with them to say, hey, we've got a fix for your site. It's not ready for the standard future. And we've mm. already come up with a solution. Here you go. Mm. So uh, that's given me actually a, that that's informed my perspective on uh, Mozilla and Opera's 
take on vendor prefixes and <laughs> their recent actions. So, so in the sense that um, you know you're you're okay with them doing that, or in terms of like their position on it, or, or in what way? I wouldn't say I'm okay. I'd say I'm sympathetic to their plight okay. because I I have been in that same position of <laughs> you know back then it was hey, your site works great in Internet Explorer for Windows and nothing else. Right, yeah. Please fix it. And here is how you fix it. And we would, be, we would love to work with you to fix it and it won't cost you a dime. And, mm. you know, lots of sites really responded to that. But, you know, occasionally there would be sites that would say, works in Internet Explorer, what do we care right. about yeah. anyone else? Or, mm. you know, other sites who would say, no, you broke it, you fix your browser. We're, you know, we're, we're not fixing our website just because you screwed something up. Right. You know, and of course, then that was the, there were millions upon millions of sites that we didn't have time to get to. So, I mean, I have, I have sympathy for their position. That's not to say that I necessarily like or approve of what they've done mm-hmm. or what they're planning to do, but I definitely feel their pain. <laughs> right. And, and if I can summarize it, if, it, if I get it wrong, let me know. But it's just, so like browsers like um, Opera and Firefox, they're going to uh, basically, um, I guess in a sense, it's turn on support for the WebKit prefix in uh, in the CSS, even though that's not their vendor right. prefix, right? So and then so that because that way people will who just coded these animations or all those fancy doodads, if you will, uh, with WebKit, and that was just it. Uh, will actually be able to work in Opera and, and Firefox. Is that right? Basically, I mean, I th- I think I think the current plan is that they'll turn on support for WebKit prefixes on a case-by-case basis, right? So, hey, we support keyframes, but this browser or this author only said, you know, WebKit keyframes, so we'll treat that as though they said Moz keyframes or O keyframes or whatever. Um, But, you know, we don't support text squish at all, you know, so we won't try to recognize WebKit text squish. Uh, That's the plan now. Now, is that all of Firefox, or is that just Firefox Mobile? At the moment, it's Firefox Mobile, and I'm not sure if Opera is only doing Opera Mobile. I I can't remember if their plan is to do it in all browser, all Opera browsers, or if it's just in mobile. But you know, there's the plans now, and there's the plans a year from now. Oh. And I I kind of have this feeling that. Once they start down this road, they'll just keep going further down it, right? It will become less and less worthwhile to do things on a case-by-case basis. And, you know, at some point, they'll just decide to flip the switch for everything. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure if you ask them today, they would say, no, 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 that's not our plan. And it probably isn't, probably isn't their plan, but, you know, plans in reality. Reality has a tendency to warp plans. So I kind of feel like that's where vendor prefixes are going to, go over the next couple of years is they'll basically become all WebKit all the time. But we'll see. Yeah. I could be wrong. <laughs> well, been wrong I think before. <laughs> the vendor prefixes, that's just another example of what's happening in the world of CSS. In the past year or two years, we've seen this kind of seismic shift in what we can do with CSS, how we think about CSS, how we write our CSS. You know, We've witnessed pretty much the end of IE6 um, for most of us, uh, the rise of mobile and responsive web design, you know, CSS3 becoming uh, this more mature and, and the, the properties being supported by almost all browsers now. Um, 
so we're really, uh, this is like a, a fun, exciting, and also kind of strange time, especially for someone like yourself who's been here pretty much through the entire, you know, growth uh, and birth even of CSS. Um, what what are you feeling like these days? What how, how what's your historical take on what's happening? I mean, I think I think you're right. It's pretty amazing everything that's coming along and all the stuff that we can do now that we couldn't even do a few years ago. Yeah, it's I mean animations transitions transforms um, some of the selector stuff. It's it's there's a lot of activity happening now. I know that the working group tends to get stick f- for being really slow and there was a period where you know they didn't really produce much if anything but um, I don't think that's as true now and, and browser vendors are obviously pushing forward really hard with a lot of interesting stuff and so yeah it's, it's really it's really kind of exciting it's sort of like a second explosion as it were how about no, you, I, Dave? Though I mean, you've been you've been doing this for a long time. Oh, yeah, think? no, I mean, I I've been yeah doing this since '95, and uh, I teach at, at Portland State University. So it's I mean, I'm rewriting basically everything I've ever taught in this past year is like it's all new. So I'm writing new lesson plans, and and really my head is reeling with all the changes that we're we're faced with now. Um, now, are you on the CSS working group, or you were, or what? I was between yeah. about 1997 and 2003, roughly. I was an invited expert. I just I didn't have the time to contribute meaningfully, or sure. even or even unmeaningfully, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I uh, didn't even have time to heckle them from the sidelines. <laughs> yeah, not not frequently enough to justify still being a member. So yeah, I, I depart. I do occasionally heckle them, but. <laughs> really, really more on a personal level now. <laughs> so one thing that we've seen this past year is really the rise of CSS preprocessors like SAS and Less and Stylus. Have you tried any of these things? And do you have any opinions on 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 what they are, where they're going? I haven't um, used any of them in like, you know a production situation. Let's say I've sort of noodled around with Hello World type examples. Um, my, I mean, my view of preprocessors is that they're obviously very handy tools for people who have to maintain large deployments or who have to maintain large style sheets, right? Um, and they're, they, they have some advantages for, for some people. Uh, one of the, which one's white space sensitive? Is that SAS? I can never remember. One of them, the white space is significant. Mm, I think it's less. Is it less? Okay. So, so don't quote me. <laughs> what, what, right, whichever one it is, for people who think white space significance is awesome, then that's awesome. Right? <laughs> and for people like me who don't, then that particular you know framework doesn't really float my boat. But you know, it's and I'm not, I don't want to get into the white space wars. But <laughs> um, what I really, really like, um, and what I think is a a, a crucial contribution of things like less and SAS and stylus is that they help point the way to what CSS needs. Mm. Even if, you know, we've known for decades, well, okay, decades is overstating it, but we've known for a really long time, right, that <laughs> variables would be really handy. You know, right. the ability to say my color and then throughout your style sheet say, you know, color my color, background color, mm-hmm. you know, border color my color. Like, that's really handy. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the idea keep, 
keeps getting or kept getting suggested to the working group and the working group would basically say, no, variables is too much like a programming language and mm-hmm. not that many people right. would really use it and there are other ways you can deal with this and just use a preprocessor, okay? Mm-hmm. So now we have these really popular preprocessors and everybody's using variables. So there's the ability to go back to the working group and say, okay, so people are using preprocessor for this, processors for this. Like entire plugin ecosystems have arisen around just this thing do you think mm-hmm. maybe the language could do this natively? Because people kind of like it. <laughs> and now there's at least efforts in that direction as opposed to sort of being dismissed out of hand, which right. was what used to happen. Um, you know, the idea of mix-ins or extensions or, you know, wh- whatever the terminology is, that's also getting some consideration mm-hmm. by the working group. You know, I, but just because it's getting con- something's getting consideration doesn't mean it'll eventually be in the spec, but sort of like JavaScript polyfills and libraries, preprocessors are a way of people trying things out and yeah. then being able to say, wow, this thing here that people do is incredibly popular. Like 90% of the people who use this tool, you know, are using it to do this, maybe other things as well, but they're doing this and there's a need there, right? We have a use case, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is always really critical when you're dealing with working groups to be able to say, I have a use yeah. case and here is an example. So right. that's and why they, I... It, that's, it, they provide a you know, proof of concept so yeah. we can actually see it and uh, say, that's great. It's awesome. I'm using it. It works. And that helps the evolution of CSS, definitely. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. So definitely gives us this critical mass in order for the working group to notice. Because I, I mean, I noticed the whole variable debate or like issue, if you will, for just years has been going oh, yeah. on back and forth with the working group. So right. it's so now they actually have that in there. So um, you know, and it's something that I guess is just the way things are. Just like because CSS was written to be a kind of a design language, it's like uh, to add all these things into CSS. It's like people were kind of surprised that uh, you know with animations and. Uh, transitions and all that stuff that that they're kind of surprised that the CSS was actually just designed to be a design language and not to be a like JavaScript, if you will. No, it's just right. it's not supposed to be that. So, any thoughts on you know is this is this just the, the the way it's going to be, or you have any like thoughts on that? Um, sorry, I lost the plot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thoughts on what again? Uh, just just thoughts on like you know the evolution of CSS. Is it just oh. like because where it's supposed to be like. It initiated to be a design kind of focus, you know, type of language. Now, do you, I feel like it's going to be more of a oh, kind of like hybrid, like you know, you have to be a programmer or uh, know the basic concepts of uh, programming in order to get to like the the cool stuff. Like, like in order to do preprocessing, you have yeah. to like know CSS and know like what what's missing and 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 how to uh, to get in there and start using it. So, whereas like you know when it first started, you know CSS was like you know kind of easy to get into, like. Like you know, the whole thing is like it. It takes five minutes to learn, but you know, lifetime to master type of type of thing. So, so. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I I got you now. Um. Yeah. I'm, it's hard to say, just because. Like I I've just spent a lot of time looking and de- delving through animation, mm-hmm. and transitions and all the transforms and all that stuff and. It's, I mean, it's not quite a programming language. It's, it's not, you can't really do like logical constructs. Like the closest you can get with animation is you can just loop through something infinitely, but that's not really the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it comes to variables, I mean, a variable is, uh, you could you could recast it as a macro, right? And right. 
but just by using a different word, it suddenly becomes less programming wise. But yeah, I mean, we are there, there's there's a little bit more every year. I think of of technical complexity. You know, if if you don't know how to install your own software, then you're going to have a hard time like setting up last or SAS, right? Right. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. There may be, there may be packages that make it easier for you, but you know, you're still going to have to have at least some, some comfort with that sort of thing. Um, you, you know, with, with animations, it's, you know, having to think in terms of keyframes, if, if you're using the keyframe animation syntax or, you know, um, thinking a lot more logically, you know, there are a lot of things that surprise me even with transitions. The, I want to apply this transition on hover, but then I want it to unwind when I unhover. So that means that I have to apply the transition stuff in the unhovered state, right? Mm-hmm. Like right. Yeah. It has to be there because otherwise when you unhover the thing, then the transition no longer applies. If, you know, if you put the transition property in the hover state, then as soon as you unhover, there's no more transition and then it snaps mm-hmm. right back to the start point with no unwinding. And like at first it was like, what, why? Sure. <laughs> and then, okay, right. That, yeah. that does make sense. Yeah. And it is logical. It just didn't occur to me originally. Yeah. So, but the the interesting thing is that all this stuff that CSS is adding, it's still managing to keep its declarative nature. Like, mm-hmm. right? It's still a declarative language, mm-hmm. and it will be interesting to see if at any point it has to abandon that. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're there yet, and mm-hmm. I don't see any particular thing on the horizon that makes me think that it will have to be abandoned. But you know, the more that we see stuff added through jQuery, that right. you, know, you can't necessarily, well, that no one's figured out how to do declaratively yet. Maybe that stuff can't be done declaratively. And so, yeah, it's, then, then you start to get into these, these working group sort of purity contests where it's the, well, the CSS working group stops here. It's like, well, jQuery does this, right? That's the DOM working group. We don't need to do that. <laughs> but it's all about the presentation. No, DOM, go away. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. anyway. So you've been doing a lot of work with animations, CSS animations recently? Recently, yeah. What What have you learned? or what? That I am not an animator. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Also that, uh, also that uh, matrix math? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I still don't get it. Oh, okay, awesome. There was just an article uh, published on uh, by Opera. Yeah. Like, what, yesterday or the yeah. day before? Yeah, it was yesterday, yeah. It was yesterday, yes. Understanding the CSS Transforms Matrix by Tiffany yes. Brown. I haven't had a chance to read it, but it looks like my, my quick scan of it was, okay, maybe I'll get this. <laughs> this, <laughs> this might be the one where I, where I get it just enough to say, okay, I've got it now. Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, that's looking good. So again, understanding the CSS transforms matrix by Tiffany Brown over at yeah. dev.opera.com. Yeah. People should check that out if they're interested in matrix math. Yeah. How about you guys? Have you been messing with animations? I have not. I've been just doing CSS transitions. I'm a pretty conservative uh, guy. <laughs> I mean, you know, I teach to people who have to build real websites for real clients. And so I don't usually hang out on the bleeding edge as much as uh, stick with the stuff that has wide, you know, browser support. So I've been, you know, I'm always a little bit behind the curve in terms of learning those things. Um, But they're exciting. I mean, it's super cool. I mean, CSS transitions are 
phenomenal. And when I start showing and teaching uh, designers, you know, here you do this and this and this, and suddenly you have this kind of fade out effect. They mm-hmm. go crazy. They think this is just like magic. And so it's really exciting. Yeah. I, I, and I've, I have to say, I've been, I've been pretty impressed by the simplicity of the transition syntax. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it's, it's hard to imagine it being much simpler without losing a lot of functionality. Um, I do, and I, although I do think one of the, one of the things that people are going to struggle with initially is that transitions are not animations and vice versa, right? Like there is a difference, right? but sometimes it's hard to see, especially since like, it's, it's really easy to come up with transitions that, you know, make something slide to the side. It's like, well, that totally animated, right? (laughs) Right? right. But it's not an animation. It's a transition. Wait, what's, and, uh, you know, sometimes our, our basic animation examples, you know, could be transitions. And so mm-hmm. trying to make, tr- draw that distinction and get people to sort of think, hey, you know, this is this thing and this is that thing. And yes, you can, mm-hmm. in certain areas, you can, you can have overlapping, you, you can sort of overlap the, the effect. But, um, you know, I, it's, it's just, I've been, I, I have been impressed by the transitions. The, the animations also seem kind of simple, mm-hmm. although... Yeah, I keep pounding my head against her things, <laughs> you know, and and I think to some degree there are there are some properties that aren't you can't animate. Although at first it seems like you should be able to, or that the spec right. says you can't animate, but you can, like yeah. box shadow. According to the animations, the latest draft of the animation spec, you can't animate box shadow. But I'm here to tell you right now, I've animated box shadow. <laughs> so nice. Well, if, if you if you. I don't know if I would say nice considering oh. visual results. <laughs> oh, really? okay. Done. <laughs> oh, well. So uh, that's never bothered me before. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> yeah. Ask anyone who's ever been in any of my training. So I'm going to put up fuchsia, lime, and cyan on the same screen. <laughs> like, and their eyeballs bleed. Oh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of my goal. <laughs> well, uh, maybe we could, you know, step back from the cutting edge and, and get back to some fundamental stuff um, sure. around how we write our CSS. I mean, you're credited. I mean, you're, I, I, I believe you're the one that came up with the first CSS reset, you know, way back when, you know, which is for those of you who are listening don't know that, you know, it's basically a set of styles that erases browser formatting of HTML and Designers get to start with a clean slate and avoid any kind of cross-browser weirdness around margins and things like that. Um, and that was, when was that? That was 2000, 2000-something or other? Yeah, well, first, I wouldn't say that I wrote the first reset. I may have written the first popular one. It's sort of like people, you know, I, I sort of feel like the mosaic of reset style sheets sometimes, right? <laughs> it's the one that everyone remembers, but it wasn't uh-huh. the first one. Like, right. Tontek Chalik did a... Did a um, a post shortly before I wrote the reset about undoing HTML, right? Right, which it was similar ideas, and some other people had done stuff like that. There was a, there was a Yahoo, yeah, Yahoo had a reset of sorts, mm-hmm. but it had a, I think it was using the the universal reset at that one. It was you know the star margin right. zero padding zero, and so, right, like. I think mine might have been the first that said, okay, we're going to reset most things, but we're going to leave form elements alone. But anyway, it, w- it was an early implementation of resets, yes. Um, which led and to some 
you know, and it's still credited to this day. I mean, you look at, at people's uh, style sheets and there's your name, you know, CSS Reset by Eric Meyer. Now, another approach that people are doing now, like Nicholas Gallagher and Jonathan Neal, they've got their normalize.css, which right. doesn't try to erase all the browser differences. It just tries to make formatting consistent across browsers. So we still have headlines that are of varying sizes. They're still bold, things like that. What do you, what do you think of that approach? Well, so that is an example of what I've called a baseline style sheet as opposed to a reset style sheet. So the point of the reset wasn't actually for people to take it and use it as a black box and then, you know, write their own style sheets on after it. Like mm -hmm. what I've what I see kind of too often in my opinion is where there's just this big block of reset style sheet. <laughs> and then after it is, okay, here's where we're gonna like undo some half of the things that the reset style sheet did. Mm -hmm. Right. My my original idea and was that you take the reset and then you modify it like mm -hmm. that itself. And so that's normalize is, is an example of that where they said, okay, we're going to start from the reset, but then we're going to have built in that H1 should be this size and H2 is this size and H3 is this size. And we're going to set this default background and foreground color. And that's great as long as you have that exact visual aesthetic, which mm -hmm. obviously the normalized guys do. And anyone who likes normalize and uses it for themselves does. But, you know, my, I was sort of trying to go for a thousand flowers blooming kind of thing where it was the, here's the soil. Right? Here's the, here's the start point. Like here's a seed build on this, mm -hmm. you know, and have your own thing so that if you, if you always or almost always start with Adobe Garamond as your base font, then say that in the style sheet, right? Mm -hmm. Don't just reset it up here and then set it down there. Say it, mm -hmm up at the top and you know if you think h1s should always have this particular size and body should have this background color and text should have this foreground color then put those right in there and always build off of this but people didn't do that which unfortunately meant that a whole lot of focus outlines got removed right even though i had said right in it don't forget to change this rule here so that you know <laughs> I'll focus outlines are visible. So I, I mean, I took that out of the version two of the reset. I was just like, look, I'm taking, I have to get rid of this, right? Too many people stripped away outline focus or focus outlines just because they never touched the original styles and they, they didn't see what I said. <laughs> so that was a, that was an unfortunate side effect. And I, I still feel kind of bad about that, but tried to make up for it with version two. So well, one thing I like about your reset is it's just, it's nice and simple solves, you know, the biggest problems. Um, uh, when you see a lot of these other resets that people elaborate on, they end up being these gigantic things that solve, you know, 157 different use cases and browsers that, you know, you may or may not be worried about. And they're so big that they're kind of difficult to go through and spend the time to edit down to just the core set of styles that you need to, to address your audience. Um, Right. on the site that you're building, whereas yours is just nice, concise. I can start with that, and it solves so many problems. Well, that's the advantage of being a seed as opposed to an entire oak tree, <laughs> right? Well, yeah. It really is. Well, one thing I like is, like, coming from a like, design perspective, is just, like, I like, you know, having that blank canvas, you know, and uh, the other, like, uh, like normalized, it just feels like they're, you know, they're, it's kind of a vanilla, you know, style, if you will, but they actually... They're actually giving you styles or like some, they might just kind of bias your opinion on how the text should look a little bit. And so I feel like, you know, that 
as a designer coming in there, I was like, okay, now I'm going to have control over what fonts to bring in, the margins, and you know, and the letting and stuff like that. So, and actually, like you know, and as a designer, I think that's just an awesome way to work. I mean, it's a little bit more time consuming, probably, but I feel like it's 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 definitely like a great peace of mind to use the recess uh, CSS rather than uh, having someone give me uh, their design, you know, ideas on piece of paper and working with that. So. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I could help. <laughs> so uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about how uh, we write our CSS these days or um, even code our HTML for CSS. There seems to have been a lot of change in that uh, lately. I mean, not only do we have new CSS3 properties, but people are championing totally different ways of writing CSS. I remember, you know, I think it was probably Zeldman. It was this... Uh, had written, you know, about classitis way back when, and you know, mm-hmm. we should avoid injecting classes everywhere. We can more simply do that with element uh, selectors and descendant selectors. And now, uh, it seems like every other day there's a new blog post about how ID selectors are evil and how classes should be used ex- exclusively. Um, what's your thought on this? This kind of new way of, of envisioning using CSS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm still a document structure kind of person. Mm-hmm. It's it fits where I come from. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to IDs versus classes, I have slowly come to the idea that. Pretty much, you should be using IDs if you need them for JavaScript hooks, but mm-hmm. not really probably for much else. Although the markup on my own website doesn't reflect that because the markup on my web, like the markup templates for my website date to 2005. <laughs> so, <laughs> as did the CSS until very recently. And now it only, now it still looks like it came from 2005, but I actually did a change a few things. Like, you know, using my own reset. Uh-huh. Um, (laughs) excuse me so you know basically for styling hooks i'm i've i've kind of come off of the idea that ids are a great thing um just because you do end up with specificity problems yeah right where you've set a you've set a rule somewhere you know id blah and then later on you're you're styling along and you try to style it and if that doesn't work and you throw a class name in there and it's still not working and eventually you open up Firebug or whatever inspector it is you're using and it says, yeah, see, this is being overridden by this rule over here and then you have to, okay, wait, do I throw an ID in here? What? Yeah, it's just kind of, it becomes a little bit more of a pain than it's worth. So for, for styling purposes, I'm pretty much at this point all classes and element names. But on the other hand, a lot of the stuff that I see people saying about, you know, styling with classes is only ever style with classes and never, ever use descendant selectors. And if you name, if you're naming elements, you're doing it wrong. And yeah, I don't agree. I'm, you know, these patterns exist for reasons and they're very useful. And so, you know, to be able to select all of the A elements within the main content area of my Mm -hmm. page yeah. I'm not going to class every single freaking one of those ALs <laughs> right. just so I can have a class of main content link. No, sorry, that's why descendant selectors exist. And if it makes the browser a little bit slower, that's why God gave us processors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I this it's just where I am and you know yes it can slow down to millisecond times and I have to say I'm I'm thinking largely in a desktop environment mm-hmm. here if in a mobile environment maybe I would shift a little bit more towards classing everything but not all the way it's just mm-hmm. maybe I'm just too stuck in the mud of the past you know when 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 I started out all we had was descendant selectors <laughs> and we were grateful <laughs> you kids with your with your pseudo classes and your element trees and your whatever. Um, <laughs> it's child. When I was your age, we had to class everything by hand. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that, uh, that's causing this, this, you know, this thing about people saying put classes on everything is really a rise of CMSs and, you know, people being stuck in big, uh, corporate CMS environments where they really don't understand the markup or they don't control the markup because they are working on little bits that get injected into bigger bits, and so it's much more difficult to write, you know, uh, CSS um, like descendant selectors because you don't really know the DOM tree, and so instead it's like let's just put classes on things, and they become these portable units, and that's kind of Nicole Sullivan's you know, object-oriented CSS is basically, you don't really know where the stuff's going to live. So if we just use classes to tag everything, then it doesn't really matter if it's a list item or a div or a paragraph. We can just, you know, be secure in understanding that it's going to be formatted the way we want it to be. But that's that's not everybody's experience. I mean, not everybody is locked into some giant CMS. It's not Facebook that we're designing. It's maybe a, you know, it's a much smaller client site that may, may or may not even have a CMS behind it. Right. And not to mention, I mean, you know, I kind of feel like that, that, I mean, you've, you've laid out that case very well, you know, where you don't know what the context is. And if you use everything with, if you just throw a class on everything, you can style it directly. But yeah, that was also true of the font tag. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't make it a good idea. (laughs) Um, And so I mean, I, I, I do have sympathy for people who are in CMS systems and, you know, who might be only responsible for this piece of this page. But, you know, you can still class that piece of that page mm-hmm. and then style within it, right? As opposed to classing everything. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a balance. And, of course, where the balance point is kind of depends on your situation. You know, obviously, if you're in a CMS system, you're going to be more class heavy and you might feel that, you got a little touch of the classitis, but you know what else can you do? Whereas, as you say, in a if you're working on a smaller site or a you know a, a personal website where you have control of every last piece of it, then you can shift over maybe more towards the let's use the document tree because mm-hmm. we know what it is. So and and we don't have to worry about someone changing it on us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. which I think is really the the. The, the danger or the fear within CMS environments is that, you know, it's not so much that, you know, it's not so much that I don't know what the document tree is. I can see what the document tree is, but if someone changes the class that we put on our body elements tomorrow, mm-hmm. if I'm referring to it, right, then right. suddenly all my styles break. So, right. you know, I don't want to trust anything above me that I can't touch, yeah. which I have sympathy for. But, right. Or in the case of like a WordPress theme, like if you swap in a new theme, mm-hmm. the markup underlying that theme might be totally different. So you can't, it's, you can't really rely on using element selectors, for example, because this theme author might not use divs. They might use you know, the aside element or the you know, header element. 
So, right. Yeah, certainly. That's why I write my own theme. <laughs> right. <laughs> and no, I'm not going to release it because it's really horrible. <laughs> you have a series of test suites on your, on your, on your website, which are, which um, as a CSS geek, as much as I can be, uh, just they're awesome. But uh, can you explain people uh, what they are and, and, and why you use them? Yeah, well, so the general idea of a test suite is that you find out which browsers support what. Mm-hmm. Hope, you know, at least to some degree. It used to be really easy, right? Like back when I started creating test suites and putting up support information, it was pretty much either browser supports this, browser does not support this, browser tried to support this and botched it so badly that it made me want to vomit, right? That was that was about as subtle as it got. So, um, but the idea, you know, the idea here is you put up something to say, hey, is word wrap fully, like are all the word wrap values supported in this browser? And then what about this browser and this browser and this browser and this browser? Um, for me, they're useful these days for figuring out what I should be writing about in like my books. You know? Because font stretch may be a really interesting property, but oh. if nobody supports it, then mm-hmm. it's not really worth the, the, the ink and paper and more importantly, the reader's time to say, hey, this is what font stretch does and da-da-da-da-da and here's three examples and by the way, nobody supports it so you can't use it. Right. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what I use them for. I mean, I, I put them out publicly so other people can look at them and tell me if I got them wrong, which sometimes my tests are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had to adapt... In the CSS3 testing, I've had to set things up so that I can see both the unprefixed and the prefixed, mm-hmm. you know, versions of a of a test page to see if something works or not. But that's really what they are: is just to find out, you know, what's working and what's not working. And you know, especially if you find something that's not working when you know that the browser maker in question has already said that it works, then that's when you start like pounding on it and figuring out: okay, did I get this wrong, or did I find a bug? Or were they just on crack or what happened there? (laughs) Um, The original, I mean, the original CSS1 test suite that the W3C published, which was like the first test suite that they really had for a specification and was mostly based on a test suite that I had put together in the mid-90s. That actually, part of the point there was to drive conformance. Mm-hmm. And that, when the W3C does a test suite, that is the point. It's to drive conformance. Mm-hmm. Right? It's to get all the browser makers on the same page, doing the same stuff. Right. You know, it's the, if you're going to support this thing, then pass this test. Right? And if right. you don't pass this test, you haven't done it right yet. Don't ship that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do pass this test, but you find some you know, interesting things along the way, then let us know and we can update the test. So that's, that's what the W3C tests are for. And, and, and that's truly vital. And so that that's sort of like the, where the like where the upstairs project groups the acid test also played that role too. To some degree, the acid test to me is like taking an entire test suite mm-hmm. and throwing it all into a pot and boiling it for a while, mm-hmm. which is not to me necessarily the best way, you know, to to figure out conformance. It's it's handy for press releases and screenshots, um, and it does. I mean it. I don't want to completely sound like I'm completely dismissing these out of hand because I'm not, you know, with an acid test, you can combine things in really interesting ways. And sometimes it's that combination is where the hardest implementation is, right? It's easy to implement thing A and it's easy to implement thing B, but to do them both in such a way that they actually interact well together, that can be the really hard part. 
Um, but I, for me, a, 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 the kinds of test suites that I've always produced and that I tend to prefer are the, let's look at this one little atomic thing right. very closely in detail and figure out if that works. And then here's the next atomic thing. So, the, you know, there's one page about color and then there's another page about background color and then you have a third page about background image, yeah. right? And you try not to mix things as, you know, as much as you can, you try to keep things separated so that if you have someone at a browser team that's working on font stretch, that they can just look at that and say, okay, I need to hit this basic target, right? right? And then later on, you know, there can be acid tests. I, we had an acid test in the original CSS1 test suite, but it was sort of a summary of all the tests that had come before it in that section. So you had float, basic float tests and basic clear tests and some you know, basic layout tests. And then at the end of it, it was all like Todd Farner came up with this synthesis of all of them mm. to say, okay, this is kind of a tough thing to do. We're floating within floating floats within floats and we're clearing some floats and not clearing other floats. Right. So here's how it should lay out and here's the test. But it wasn't just like, it wasn't like the, that section was just the acid test. It was okay. Here are these little atomic bits and then here they all are together. Right. So if the acid test had been here, are all these little pieces and then here are, they all are together. I would have been a lot happier. Okay. Personally. So where do you go uh, to figure out if a web browser is supporting certain properties? I mean, do you just test this or do you go to uh, sites like Can I Use or are there other sites out there? Um, usually I'll write my own test page. Right? Just because, I mean, when it comes to CSS anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, just because I want, A, I want to see if it if it's you know, if something is working in what, whatever or not working in whatever browsers I'm dealing with. And also, if they're working, then exactly how. Because, you know, it's not as though test pages spring fully formed from my fingers and then I never touch them again, <laughs> right? I, like, have some tests and it'll be like, oh, okay, that was interesting. Hmm, let me add a couple more little tests here on this page and see what happens. And, oh, okay, that, that was weird. Let me adjust the one before. And, oh, this would be an interesting way to go about you know, testing this particular aspect of this property. So you just, they become very iterative. And in the process, I learn how that one thing works. Um, sites like Can I Use and HTML5, please, and so on. You know, I'll go to, if I just want to, you know, get sort of a, a broad overview. But I'm, I'm much more of a hands-on person. I would rather test it out myself and, and prove to myself that, hey, this works or doesn't work. Right. And then plus we publish it in, in the open and then you can just say, hey, am, am, I, am, I, am I crazy? This does not work for you guys? Or... Right, there's that too. I mean, it, usually after I've tested something, if it doesn't work, mm -hmm. I'll probably go to, can I use HTML5, please, et cetera, and say, mm -hmm. see if they found the same thing. <laughs> and if they didn't, then yeah, it's really easy for me to toss up the test page and go, why doesn't this work? <laughs> what, what did I do wrong here? Because everyone else seems to think that this works, but all of my tests failed. Okay. And, you know, then someone says, you idiot, you misspelled H1. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so what's your computer setup like for testing all this stuff? Do you do it, do you have just a Mac or do you have a bunch of computers? Yeah, I have a MacBook Pro. That's about it. But, I mean, of course, a MacBook Pro with VMware Fusion is mm -hmm. then also a Windows machine. And right. Like I could, I could install X Windows if I wanted to, or you know Linux if I wanted to mm -hmm, do that kind of sure. stuff. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a the usual all-in-one MacBook. I do mm -hmm. have an old G4 tower. I have a nice. G4 500 upstairs. Um, <laughs> it's 
finally been decommissioned, um, <laughs> basically. Although I still, <laughs> I still have to haul it down to my new office and plug it into my router just long enough to like deauthorize it in iTunes or whatever. But <laughs> um, I was really sad though because it was a it like I got it in 2000 and I got it with a cinema display. Yeah. But the cinema display now, if you plug like cinema displays from 2000 into modern computers, they don't work quite right. Like the video signal gets really glitchy. And I was really sad. I was like, I have a cinema display. I'll just plug it in. Damn it. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm slowly working my way towards hopefully one of these days thinking about buying a decent like 24 to 27 inch external monitor for the MacBook. Um, I just haven't gotten there yet. Well, well, in, in doing the research uh, for this interview, like we came across an um, uh, interview that specifically talked about like your computer setup, and and uh, one of the computer apps that, that you mentioned was, uh, which has now been like also like decommissioned, like uh, uh, pretty much like your your G four, but uh, is uh, Marco Polo. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you do you find a need for something like that still, or do you think the uh, like Mac OS is taking care of that now? Or um, I still run it. Oh really? Wow. Yeah, it's running now. Um, in fact, it's it has switched to the Ethernet context because I plugged in an Ethernet cable in order to do this uh, do this interview. But um, no, I, I I find it really useful because it does things like it mutes the computer when I'm away from my home network, mm-hmm. right? On the assumption that hmm. like if I'm not in my own Wi-Fi cloud, then I'm probably in public, and you know other people don't need to hear my computer going bleep. <laughs> Ding! Hey, everyone! I got mail. Did you all hear that? Yeah. Uh, I don't really need that. Yeah. Um, and for that matter, it has, you know, it has time-sensitive um, context. So I have a nighttime mode where at midnight it mutes the computer, so that if I'm up late, I don't accidentally, you know, wake my children or my wife or somebody. Um, I should probably crank that back to eleven, actually. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I like it, and I have yet to find, I know there are similar products, there's, I'm trying to remember the name of one I was looking at a few months ago, um, but none of them, like, have contacted the, the the makers and said, hey, do you, can you do this, 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 and basically listed all of my use cases, and there's always at least one that they don't do, yeah. right? Like, one of them was like, no, we don't have time-based, yeah, we, we, we don't have scheduled contacts. It's like, well... I, that's what I want. <laughs> um, <laughs> or uh, what's the other one? I, I'm trying to remember. There was something else that that I was looking for. And what, what's the scheduled contact? Oh. That's when it like it says, "Hey, it's midnight. We're switching to nighttime." Okay. Right. Well, we'll mute the computer and we'll dim the display or whatever. Okay. In my case, I think it just dims the computer. But yeah. um, so, are there any special apps like that? Because I, I never heard of Marco Polo until I. I found there's anything that you feel like indispensable. Well, I mean, the thing about Marco Polo is it's not actually indispensable. I just really, really like it. Right. And I'm not going to, you know, pay $40 to replace it with something inferior. Right. Um, Things that are indispensable. Well, I mean, BB edit, but that was kind of a given. Um, Well, like an indispensable or something that's like kind of like the luxury, I guess, if you will, like Marco Polo, that, that that helps you your job faster and easier um ukulele which is a keyboard remapper oh wow 
Um, so I, I remapped my keyboard to give me uh, direct access to a number of symbols that are otherwise very difficult mm. to get to. So as an example, I remapped the square bracket keys. The, they still produce square brackets, but in conjunction with um, modifier keys, I can use them to produce either um, single or double curly quotes. <laughs> awesome. Open and close. <laughs> and uh, I just recently used it to remap um, with modifier keys, the one numbers one, two, and three. So, like with the specific modifier combinations, they'll produce the um, the accepted symbols for Shift Control and the place of interest for the command on the Apple. <laughs> nice, right? So, being able to do that kind of thing. Oh, and and here's the other one. Uh, nobody tell the guys at Twitter about this, but I remapped the the period key so that if I hit Option period, it actually produces a different Unicode character that looks almost exactly like a period. <laughs> So that when I tweet short URLs, I don't get auto uh, auto TCO'd. Oh, nice! I will not oh. be telling anyone at Twitter this. Don't yeah, tell them. I won't because I don't <laughs> want them to add that Unicode character <laughs> yeah. to their shortening algorithm because that would really piss me off. Oh, that's great! Yeah. Occasionally, I'll do things like you know, go to hixie.ch or you know whatever, right. and if I they forget to do it. that, then it's like HTTP colon slash slash t.co blah, 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 blah. And they're up to what? A hundred characters now and they're shortening because everyone in mm -hmm. the world is posting URLs to Twitter and whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like the shortened URLs are getting longer than the URL I'm posting. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in order to defeat that, I'm just like, yeah, yeah oh, that's a good period. One. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, then you have the whole debate over um, shorteners that, you know, and the whole, you know, the idea of having links where like, like with that, Trim tr.im just you know disappearing, and yep. and all those links are gone now. So it's just yep. yeah. That's uh, that's another reason that I. I mean, I don't always shorten, mm. or I don't always beat the shortener. Um, yeah. But yeah, there there are cases where I'm just like, yeah, stop screwing with my content. Um, right, totally. I uh, so, actually you, I have a a tool, another tool that I use um, relatively often, which is called. Uh, Paparazzi. Paparazzi. For What's OS ten, it's uh, pretty much it's a wrapper around WebKit, the WebKit engine. Mm -hmm. You give it a URL and uh, parameters for maximum and minimum width of page display, and then you hit save, and it will save a screenshot of the entire page, not just. Oh. The Oh. Right. So you can have this incredibly long page right. that you want to get all of it. Mm -hmm. So you just feed it to paparazzi and because it's using the WebKit engine, it's, <laughs> you know, at least it, it's as good as Safari, at least on the, on the machine. It, it's not perfect, right? If, if you want to get a screenshot of the entire page after you've interacted with it and like cause something to pop open, that doesn't really work. You can really right. only take a shot of what the page looks like when you, when you load it. Sure. But in 98% of cases, that's just fine for me. But you can you can set the width too of the browser window. Yeah, you can in the UI. I'll launch it here. You can set a minimum size and then a crop size. Mm -hmm. So you can say something like, "I want a minimum size of 600 pixels wide," but then I want to crop it at 800 pixels. Well, and cool. you can also set heights, but I almost never do. I almost have them. I'll almost always have them set to be infinity. <laughs> and you can you can set a delay as well. So the delay between page load and capture. So if you 
if there's something where you load a page and then it pops up after three seconds and you want to get that, then you can say, you know, load this page and then take a shot of it after five seconds. Mm. So, you know, it's cool. It's, it's just, a, yeah, it's a nice little utility. Um, and you use, use BB edit for uh, CSS and HTML. Yes. yes Old school. Old school baby. <laughs> so you're not jumping on the uh, sublime text. Well, I guess it's Coda 2 now bandwagon, right? That just came out yesterday or is that today? Coda 2? Uh, it, it did just come out recently and I think it's on sale half off right now. Yeah. Oh, but no, because okay. um, no. I, I already have BB Edit and Transmit. Mm-hmm. So Transmit and BB Edit work together really well so I can use Transmit to go to a website double click on an HTML file, it immediately opens up in BB edit and any changes I make and save then go get posted back via transmit. Um, and that to me, that would be like code is this, you know, this whole open it via FTP and then save it to FTP. It's like, yeah, I can already do that. Right. And like I've, I've written stuff for BB edit. I've written my own filters, my own text factories to let me process stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and had, a, I mean, other other people have written filters and text factories for me as well. Um, right. Which, you know, that kind of thing, it's really hard to recreate that sort of thing in other tools. Sure. So, and why know, bother if it's working? Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, it's, it's not that I'm, oh my God, I'm trapped. It's not that at all. It's just, you know, <laughs> if I were to move over, it would be, it would be, uh, there'd be a, an extra right. startup cost. And I don't, I just, I don't see the need. BB edit has been really great for years and years and pretty much does exactly what I need. And it stays out of my way the rest of the time. And it's hard yeah. to ask for much more than that in a piece of software. Right. It really and, is. And after all, it's just text editing. It is just text <laughs> yeah. That is true. So, um, we always end our uh, podcast with a, a question to our, um, guest about the future Uh, and uh, we're wondering what emerging web design technology trends um, are you most excited about the things that are either cutting edge or are coming down the pipe um, that really get you excited about continuing to work on the web um smell-o-vision it'll be big (laughs) oh I already got that (laughs) you gotta come to my office it's terrible (laughs) Okay then. No. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, we'll edit that out in post. Oh uh, no, you, you know, the part about your office. Sure, we can leave the smell vision part. Um, there are actually, I mean, more than once there have been startups that have created like little scent creators that you can plug into your computer, and then they have their own APIs. Anyway, never right. mind. Uh, let's see. Um, I think just. What I'm excited about is the the rate of change and the fact mm-hmm. that it's that it is so much faster now. Um, you know, there's and for that matter, you know, in a way, I'm really excited about the fact that there are such uh, heated debates about mm-hmm. things because it means that people care. Right. 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 And it's true that oftentimes the results are, well, maybe not oftentimes, but sometimes the, res- the results of those debates are not what I personally would have done. And they might be something that I think is really stupid, but the fact that it was, you know, energetically debated at all is a great thing. Cause it, you know, and then like in the two or like the 2005 plus or minus two years, it kind of felt like people didn't really care that much. Mm-hmm. Right. 
right? I mean, we cared about web and web design, but the actual technologies and the advancement was kind of like, eh, well, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, it would be nice if we could do this, but what we have works well enough and we understand it. And there was a sort of a, sort of a plateau. And you know, every, I think, you know, every community and every technology needs those quiet times. But I'm, I'm personally kind of glad we're out of it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, CSS four selectors, but that's the kind of geek I am. Yeah. Right. Right. And just in general, I think the, the continuing, the continuing push that's provided by, you know, polyfills and libraries and, and preprocessors to, to chart out where it is we need to be going. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and things that people are doing around those, that's, I think what probably has me, I'm really glad that those things are there, um, you know, as we discussed earlier, because they do, they provide impetus for forward movement and they, they provide a roadmap for both spec authors and for browser implementers to say, okay, we want to do this general thing. How are people already doing that? We can look and see how they're doing it and, right. you know, do something that captures or exceeds what they're already doing. How about you guys? What are you excited about? Uh, I'm with you. I, I'm. It's just an exciting time. I, you know, I like to learn and write books and teach. And um, for me, you know, this kind of rapid pace of change is is really exciting. It's neat stuff to learn. It's neat that there's so many people, uh, even people who are just new, you know, relatively to web the web world, who are doing fascinating stuff, interesting stuff to push the web forward. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, just uh, just the fact that people are talking. And hammering out the solutions, and sometimes I don't even like the solutions, <laughs> but I'm yeah. really glad they're they're having this debate. Like, uh, uh, like you know, as recorded, like the whole responsive image uh, picture uh, element that brouhaha that happened uh, yeah. recently. Right. I, I didn't really, I don't really care for picture element. I, I thought it was kind of like not the greatest solution, but I'm like, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm not the smartest person in the room, and most people in this room uh, agree on it. So, but you know, that's pretty awesome. So. Um, the fact that we're actually like, you know, that's just, it's being hammered out and it's, it is an important issue that's, that's coming to the forefront. And it's just a really great, uh, great thing. And it's just, you know, I, I kind of thought like, wow, we, do we actually need a browser war in order to get browser wars, you know, to actually get things going again? You know, it's just like, it's like, oh, right. things are really bored. Like, it's a Star War. Okay. But, uh, uh, you know, sort of thing. So it's just, you know, but, uh, but now it's like, you know, you, you have the Google, Chrome, uh, and uh, you know Firefox and Safari, all you know, all out there doing great things. But then you also have the mobile space coming up, coming up, and uh, and so I think that's kind of like both are feeding off each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so it just it's just the rapid fire of yeah. Space. And let's not forget the Internet Explorer team; they're doing yes. some good stuff in IE10. Oh, yeah, they oh, really yeah, are. Yeah. And in am- fact, so there, so there's one more thing: the grid layout module. Yeah, super, super stoked. Yeah. Supported on E10, and I, you know, the sooner that it can get supported on other browsers, because oh my god, so hot! Really? <laughs> yes. So, so cool. what about it is uh, is awesome? Or not? The fact that you can like create a strong gridded layout system, or even mm-hmm. a semi-gridded layout system, mm-hmm. in a fairly compact declarative expressive language, and then mm-hmm. or declarative language, and then just attach elements. To it, 
mm-hmm. right? So you can like mm-hmm. set some grid columns and some grid rows. So you can set horizontal and vertical grid lines mm-hmm. just to nice. find them in your CSS and then say, this element here goes from this grid line to this grid line, mm-hmm. right? Or it goes from this grid line to three quarters of the way to that grid line. Oh, that'd be good. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that, right? So amazing. Yeah. yeah. And so not widely supported at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. But right. it really, like, I, I want to see that get pushed further because yeah. it's, it's what, it's like the major missing uh-huh. elephant shaped hole in CSS. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's been missing since it was created. Right. And yeah. this has the potential to fill that. And I just really, really, really want to see that. Even if it's not exactly the way it is right now, right? Even if in the process of implementing it, some things have to get changed, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Let's just make it happen. We've waited long more than long enough for this. Let's just have it. So yeah. Woo. <laughs> well, Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great talking to you. And um, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. And um, where can people find you on the Twitter if they or on the web if they haven't already? Um, so my personal website is MeyerWeb.com. If you're still old school like me and kicking the RSS and want to <laughs> do that, yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Or, yeah, okay. Um, and on Twitter, I'm Meyer Webb. Um, same as the domain. It became sort of a brand without me meaning it for it to. <laughs> Wait, I just said personal brand. Does that mean that I have to be beaten or something? No, no, you're okay. Just, <laughs> we'll just slap some rounded corners on you and it's all good. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, right. yeah, well, so uh, that's that, those would be the two places, pretty much. Yeah. Cool, well, Again, thank you so much, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Our thanks to Eric Meyer for joining us on Nonbreaking Space. You can check out the show notes for this episode at nonbreakingspace.tv, where we'll have all the links discussed in this episode. We're also on Twitter at NBSPTV and on Facebook. Be sure to watch for the next episode of Nonbreaking Space. Due to scheduling, we haven't got our next interview recorded in time for our usual teaser. Instead, enjoy this little clip of Dave Rupert beatboxing.